You know, it's, it's pretty commonplace today for us to use our cell phones for more than just making phone calls. In fact, the other day I was in Home Depot and I was looking at an item and I wanted to compare it to a similar item at Lowe's. So I whipped out my cell phone and went to the Lowe's website. But what happens when I get in a hurry usually is my phone froze. I mean, I couldn't get it to do anything I wanted it to do. So I, uh, I remembered the last time I was in the Apple store. They told me if that ever happens, all you have to do is hold down the start button and the home key. And if you do that, it'll clear whatever the problem is and it'll reset your phone to factory settings. So I decided I would do that. And sure enough, my phone came back on And in a matter of minutes, I was up and running again. You know, I think that's exactly what God had in mind when he wrote Leviticus chapter 25. You see, in the same way, Apple has developed a process that allows me to reset my iPhone and restore factory settings, God has developed a process that allows the nation of Israel to reset and restore things back to God's factory settings. Ever wanted to reset your marriage? Or or maybe it's a season of life you missed as a dad. Ever wished you could restore a broken relationship or maybe a bad decision that you made? I mean, ever wish you could go back and forgive somebody sooner rather than later? Well, I want you to know God cares about resets and restoration. He cares deeply about the value it brings, and that's why he wrote Leviticus chapter 25. So turn with me there, and let's digest it together. And I want to warn you, before we get into it, it's a very detailed chapter. So you can follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. It begins this way, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, And say to them, when you come into the land which I will give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your fields, and six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather its fruit. But on the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord you shall neither sow your fields nor prune your vineyards. So having focused on special days in the previous chapter, he transitions here and God focuses now on special years. In the same way Israel was commanded to observe a Sabbath day once a week, they are now commanded to observe a Sabbath year one year in seven once every seven years. And just as a Sabbath day was designated a rest for the people of Israel, the Sabbath year was designated as a rest 
for of all things, the land. Let me look back at verse 2. It says, when you come into the land which I will give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So, so God establishes one year in seven to be a reset for the land of Israel. And during that time, there can be no production going on at all. The fields are to, to lay fallow, uh, unproductive. The people were commanded not to work the land whatsoever. It was really a time for the land to rest. Now, now the benefits of leaving your land uncultivated are well known today. It's called crop rotation. It, it was a time that allows the land to kind of recuperate, but it was unheard of in Moses' day. I mean, research shows us today that cultivating the land year after year after year really strips it of its nutrition. And it wears out the soil so it becomes unfertile. But allowing the land to fall fallow for an entire year, in other words, allowing weeds to come up, allowing the fruit of the plants to fall on the ground and rot was a natural way of returning fertility to the soil. Now, can you imagine what that law must have been like to leave your land totally unproductive for an entire year? How would you provide for your family? I mean, in fact, I want you to imagine just for a moment, you head to the grocery store Monday morning, but the door's locked, and there's a big sign on the door that says, all grocery and produce markets in the United States will be closed for an entire year. For 12 months, see you next year. What would you do? I mean, how would you provide for your family? Well, I mean, that was the question, and God answers it in verse 5. He says, what grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, or gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. So he's saying there's to be no formal harvest whatsoever. But as we read further, I want you to notice that what grows up naturally could be gleaned. Verse 6. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for your male and female servants, for your hired man and the, ser- and the stranger who dwells with you, for the livestock and the beast that are in your land, all the produce shall be for food. So on the Sabbath year, that one year in seven, on that Sabbath year, the seventh year, there's to be no formal planting, no harvesting. But anyone in Israel could pick what came up naturally in the fields, and they could pick it from any fields, whether they owned it or someone else owned it. In other words, this Sabbath year, everybody, uh, poor and rich alike, were allowed to share in whatever the land produced, and they shared equally. Now, think about that for a moment. That meant you were forced to trust God in ways you may never have in the past. You were forced to look at how he is going to provide, even in little ways. You would increase your sensitivity to God during that time. 
I mean, it would be a time where you would be aware of your dependence on God like never before in your life. In fact, I remember when I resigned from a church I had planted for 15 years. Now, I didn't have a job to go to, and I didn't have any appreciable income coming in other than the salary I was paid by that church. But God had made it pretty clear I was to resign. I wrestled with it and finally decided I, I would do what God asked me to do. So I pulled the trigger and resigned without having any place to go. And I'm here to tell you, it felt like a free fall. But I began noticing my prayer life began to improve remarkably. I began to develop a sensitivity to, could God be doing that? I mean, could he be leading me here? Patty and I began seeing God provide in ways that we never would have taken note of before and just dismissed. In fact, and I went, when I went back and looked at my journal at that time, as I read, I was shocked at all the things God did, even the little things. I mean, it was amazing to me how he came through. In fact, as I went back and looked at my tax returns from that year, guess what? I made more money in the year I was unemployed than I had made in any previous year of full employment. I wouldn't trade that year of unemployment for anything because I got to see God work. So, So for Israel... That Sabbath year of rest was going to require some pretty significant faith, but sadly, they were never willing to pull the trigger. There's no biblical record they ever observed a sabbatical year, taking off one year in seven. I mean, so the question I think we have to wrestle with is, will we practice what Israel ignored? Now, God doesn't require us today to take one year off in seven. We are not required to have a sabbatical year, but are we willing to trust God enough to work margin into our lives? To seek time of rest. To designate designate time with our families and with Him, or maybe in the business arena. I mean, will we decide to follow God by choosing integrity rather than compromise, which is always easy? See, it requires. It requires faith and confidence in the character and nature of God. There's the kind of faith Israel was unwilling to exercise. So what was the result of Israel's lack of faith? Well, I want you to notice how Second Chronicles describes Israel's refusal to observe the Sabbath year. It records this, chapter 36. And those who escaped from the sword, he, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants of him until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years Israel had neglected. 
So it must have been 490 years where Israel neglected uh, God's command to let the land rest. And as a result, God removed the nation from the land for 70 years. One year for every missed Sabbath year in order to restore the fertility to the land. So the Sabbath year was a reset for the land. But I want you to notice God provides a second reset in this passage. It's a, it's a more significant reset than the Sabbath year. This reset focused on more than the land. So what was this reset? It was called the Jubilee year. It was a reset for the people. In fact, it begins in verse 8. You can follow as I read. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of, of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possessions, meaning his land, and each of you shall return to his family. So the Sabbath year was observed once every seven years, and then after seven Sabbath years, or 49 years, well, God declared the next year, the 50th year, to be a year of jubilee. By the way, that's where the 50th wedding anniversary comes from. I mean, the 50th anniversary is called jubilee, and that's where its name comes from. Now, now the word jubilee does not mean 50th. It literally means to sound the trumpet. It's the Hebrew word yobel, and it refers to the blowing of the trumpet. And it was the blowing of a ram's horn that marked the beginning of the years of Jubilee. So if the Sabbath was a reset for the land, in what ways was this year of Jubilee a reset for the people? Well, I think it can be distinguished by really four characteristics. I mean, the first is that the land of Jubilee, I mean, the year of Jubilee was a time of repentance, repentance for the people. Now, you got to remember when it started, it starts the last day of the day of atonement. That's what we just read, where Israel was commanded to afflict themselves, meaning that they were to humble themselves by confessing their sins and repenting of their wrongdoing. I mean, God knew that the people of Israel's heart had to be right or they would be unable to participate thoroughly in this year of Jubilee. And that's because, secondly, the year of Jubilee was also a time of rest. I mean, during the year of Jubilee, just like the Sabbath years before, people were forbidden to carry on normal agricultural pursuits. Why? Because God wanted to give them time to carry on spiritual pursuits. But it also required a level of trust. They had to trust that God would provide for them just like he provided for them in the Sabbath year 
when they couldn't plant or harvest from their fields. Now imagine if it took great faith to let your fields go fallow for a Sabbath year, one year and seven, it must have taken even greater faith in the Jubilee years. I mean, did you see it in the text? The the year before, the Jubilee year was always a Sabbath year, so your fields had to lay fallow for two consecutive years. That meant people had to trust God to provide for them in the 49th year, the 50th year, but really more than that, even in the 51st year, as they planted their new crops and waited for the harvest to come in. I mean, how in the world would they do that? Well, verse 20 gives us the answer. It says... And if you say, what shall we eat in the, seventh, in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years, and you shall sow in the eighth year and eat the old produce until the ninth year, until the produce, meaning the new produce, comes in. So God promised he's going to provide, but he's going to provide abundantly, supernaturally in the 49th year enough food so that it would carry Israel through in the 48th year so he'd have enough food to carry them through through the 49th, the 50th, and the 51st year as they waited for the new harvest to come in that they planted in the beginning of that 51st year. So the year of Jubilee was indeed a rest and a break for the people that freed them up not to have to worry about how they're going to provide for their family, but freed them up so that they could pursue spiritual matters. But but the year of Jubilee was also a year of restoration. Restoration. You see, the year of Jubilee, God commanded all the land that people owned, had to go back to their original owners. Now keep that in mind as we read verse 13. In the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, you shall sell Uh, He shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crop. Now, did you follow that? Wasn't that just crystal clear? Now, what he's saying is if, if land was sold, the price for the sale of that land was to be based upon the productive years that land had before it reverted back to its original owner in the year of Jubilee because all lands go back to the original owner in the year of Jubilee. So if you acquired a piece of land the year after the year of Jubilee, it meant that you would reap benefit from that land for 48 years until the next Jubilee where the land reverted back to its original owner. So for 48, 49 years, you would receive crops from that land. Let's say the average price 
of the crop that you would receive each year on that land was $100. So you would pay $4,900 for that piece of land. $100 for every year you held it until it reverted back to its original owner on the year of Jubilee. So if you bought a piece of property two years before the year of Jubilee, you would pay just $200 for that piece of property. You see, the price of the property, he says here, will be based on the productive years. So in the year of Jubilee, all lands would revert back to their original owner, which was God's way of keeping the land in the original family to which it was given. And then finally, the uh, year of Jubilee was also a time of release. I mean, look at verse 10. It says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, and it shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, meaning his originally owned land, and each of you shall return to his family. Now, do any of those words sound familiar to you I just read? Do you know those are the very words inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia? Only a better translation of the phrase inscribed on the Liberty Bell would be, and you shall proclaim not liberty but release throughout all the land. You see, in the Jubilee year, it was also a time to release for individual Israelites to be released from their debts, what they owed. Now, in American society, we incur a lot of debt. And the debt we acquire is either secured debt, as in a house loan or a car loan. Now, if you don't pay your mortgage on time or just quit paying it altogether, what do they do? They come and take your house. Why? Because your house was the security behind the loan, the collateral behind the loan, and so you would lose your house. So that's one kind of debt, secured loan. The other kind of debt is unsecured loan, as in credit cards. There's nothing backing that up. Now, you need to know that in Israel, all debt was secured. And the collateral for the debt was one of two things. I mean, if you, if you bought a piece of land... It, Well, let me just say, in order to survive, you... Okay, if you bought a piece of land uh, and you had to borrow money in order to buy seed to plant your crop for the new year, so you owe a man some money, and that crop fails, and you don't have the money to pay the lender back, well, that lender would take the collateral your land away from you. He would now own the property in exchange for uh, what you owed him. But it was worse than that. In an agricultural society, he would not only own the property, but he would end up taking your house because your house was on the property. And uh, not only that, you would end up losing your food supply because you no, had, no longer had land to grow anything on. And you'd lose your ability to generate income. In other words, you were destined for poverty. Now, because of that, 
there was a second kind of collateral that could be offered, and that collateral was yourself. I mean, in order to survive, you could sell yourself into slavery. Now, I realize the word slavery conjures up all sorts of pictures of slave ships and chains and stocks, but that was not what they talked about, the kind of slavery they had in Israel. Uh, the kind of slavery in Israel was very different. It was a indentured servitude. In other words, you would submit yourself voluntarily to a master who promised to take care of you and your family in exchange for your service on his land or property or business or whatever it was. And so you gave your time in exchange for him taking care of your family. In the New Testament, it's called becoming a bondservant. Now, in the year of Jubilee, it was designed to deal with these kinds of realities because these are just practical realities of everyday living in an agricultural society. So in the Jubilee year, well, all debts were forgiven, all properties were returned to the original owner, all indentured servants were released from their master. I mean, God did not release his children from Egypt's Egyptian slavery only to have them enslaved by other Israelites. So the year of Jubilee was one of the ways God cared practically for the people of Israel, especially the poor. He watched out for those that had very little. And that's because God loves giving fresh starts. He loves helping people restart their lives. You know, even though slavery is outlawed in America today, uh, God still loves giving people fresh starts. I I mean, he, He loves setting us free from marginalist living, from consumerism, setting us free from greed, from lying from addictive behavior, from overspending. You see, God wants to help us live in ways that embrace His priorities and allows us to see the needs of others as important as our own. So let's say you're a poor Israelite and you're working for a master, but you didn't want to wait until the year of Jubilee to receive your lands and your freedom back. Was there anything you could do? Well, yes, there was, and it begins in verse 25. Look at there. He says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. But if he is not able to have it restored to him, in other words, by his redeeming relative, then what he has sold shall remain in the land of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his possession. So what you have here is a man who loses his property. He could wait to the year of Jubilee to have his property returned to him or he might be able to find a relative, a near kinsman who had the means to buy the property, to redeem it back and give it to him. Now, that redeeming relative that's referred to here became known as the kinsman redeemer. 
And by buying back this man's property and giving it to him, he provided an economic reset for this man and his family. And then if you read further, I mean, it gets even more detailed, and you discover the price of redeeming the property was determined just like before by calculating the number of productive years remaining in that property until the year of Jubilee. So, the kinsman redeemer was a unique person. He was a man who could redeem a piece of property. But he could also redeem a person from indentured servitude. But that's not all he might do. The the kinsman redeemer may be called on to avenge the wrongful death of a family member as in uh, Numbers chapter 35. Or he might be called on to marry a widow of a family member. I mean, any of those things he could be called on to do. Now, this kinsman redeemer that buys back a piece of property or buys a person's slavery and gives him freedom, he was known as a goel. That's the Hebrew word, goel, that represents him. And that's translated near kinsman or redeeming relative as you see here in the text. But but the kinsman redeemer that avenged the wrongful death of a family member, he was called a goel hadam. And that's represented by the words in our English Bible, blood avenger. But did you notice in it all? The kinsman redeemer, he doesn't redeem anything for himself. I mean, if he redeems the land, he gives it back to the family. If he redeems a person from uh, servitude, he gives them their freedom. And in every case, the full price of redemption is absorbed by the kinsman redeemer alone. Now, from where we sit today, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. This idea of a kinsman redeemer in the Jubilee year point, they point to foreshadowing something that is to come. But would it surprise you to know that the New Testament never refers to the year of Jubilee? Nor does it refer to Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. Not once the New Testament is silent. Yet it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Well, while the New Testament is silent, I want you to know the Old Testament is loud and clear in the Old Testament. The kinsman redeemer uh, was, was seen to point to a future Messiah that would come to redeem his people and restore Israel to their land that would usher in the ultimate king's um, kinsman redeemer. And that's why Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he returned to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And they had heard of the miraculous things that Jesus had done in Capernaum, and they wanted him to do the same for them in his hometown. Now, Jesus was aware of these expectations placed upon him, so when he was asked to read out loud from the Scriptures, he chose Isaiah 61. Now, Luke records him saying this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Did you know that phrase, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, is a Hebrew idiom for the jubilee year. Now, now that, that means that, that the inhabitants there in Nazareth would have interpreted everything Jesus said as great news. I mean, they would immediately thought, thought, that means my debts are going to be forgiven. I'm going to get my land back. This is going to be great. And, and that's why those in the synagogue that heard Jesus read from the Scripture there were so enthusiastic over what he said. I mean, the next verse, verse 20 says, And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? In other words, isn't he one of us? He's one of us. And he should do for us what he did in Capernaum. And frankly, since he's one of us, he should do more for us in his hometown. I mean, it would be interpreted as great news indeed to all who heard Jesus' words. But as kinsman redeemer, the messianic kinsman redeemer, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, Jesus had a whole lot more on his mind than simply giving these people back their land and restoring their debts. His mission was far broader than anyone listening to his words could have fathomed. Jesus was on mission to expand the blessings of God beyond the nation of Israel to the very people the Jews disliked. They despised the Gentiles. They were seen as unclean. They were called the Goel. He wanted to expand his mission to reach them. And he communicates what he wants to do clearly when he reminds them of two stories in the Old Testament. He goes on as he's speaking. He tells them the story of Elijah raising from the dead the son of a Gentile woman found in 1 Kings 17. And then he reminds them of the story of Elisha healing the arrogant a Gentile army captain from a leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, Jesus' message to these people could not be clearer. And just as the Jewish debtors and slaves were set free every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, now Gentiles would be set free from the debt of their wrongdoing and slavery to their sin if they would simply put their trust in this messianic kinsman redeemer as their savior and provider. Now you need to know to the nation of Israel, especially to the people listening to Jesus' words, this was a complete reversal of perspective. I mean, so much so that Luke records that the crowd became angry at Jesus. In fact, he says they were enraged. They drove him out of the temple. They took him to the top of a hill to throw him off and kill him. And Luke tells us he passed 
through their midst and went on his way. You see, Jesus, as the Messianic kinsman redeemer, was reaching way beyond just God's chosen people, Israel, to include us as his chosen people. He was looking to pay a price we could not pay for a debt he did not owe in order to draw us close. So what does it mean today to live in light of the year of Jubilee? Well, I think it means several things. I think it means developing a thankful heart. Thanking God for all the provisions He's given you. Everything you own was a gift from Him. And reflecting that back to Him in your words, your thankfulness. I think it also means trusting God to provide what you need as you carve margin into your schedule. And margin into your checkbook. I think it means uh, caring for for friends beyond family who don't know Jesus as their personal Savior. I also think it means to confidently trust God when His ways seem upside down from our logic and our instincts. I think it means giving your time to serve not just those who know Christ, but those who don't. Maybe it's giving money for hurricane relief. For some of you, it may mean contributing your time in hurricane relief. It means we take on the priorities of Jesus and make them our own. And as a result, there will be joy, you'll have the joy of having a front row seat and watching God come through for you in ways that I think will boggle your mind and enlarge your heart for Him. Father, thank You for this detailed chapter that really points to You in such powerful ways as our kinsman redeemer. Thank you that you have come for us to redeem us from our wrongdoing, to free us from this bondage we have to sin. And you have come for us in order to free us to engage with others. And that just reminds me that would you oversee the care and concern for those people in Houston and beyond who were affected by that hurricane. Would you lead us individually in how we are to help? And would you provide for them in such miraculous ways that they just know that's got to come from you? As they face tragedy, would you help them grieve the loss of property and for some the loss of loved ones? And I pray that you would shine as a beacon of hope to those who've lost everything down there. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you came prepared to give, you probably know there are often boxes out in the foyer. And if you have questions about Horizon and would love to have them answered, we would love to engage with you. Drop by the hearth room, third door on the left as you leave, and we would love to put a name with a face. Enjoy the rest of this great day. See you next week.